We are kicking off today our series titled The Story. And if you've been missing in action for the last three weeks, it might be catching you off guard. But no worries, you can jump in at any time. And it is only week one. And so we, this last week, if you got your storybook already, you read the chapter one, which takes you through some of the very beginning of Genesis, the creation story. The story of Adam and Eve and the way that God made Adam. I, I heard the, the story of little Johnny. He was in Sunday school. And it's one of those rare times where the kid is just like dialed in, in because every other time they're like climbing on the ceiling and stuff. But he was dialed in during the story of Adam and Eve. And when, when the teacher said, God made Eve out of the rib of the man, his jaw just kind of dropped open. You know, his fingers went down and kind of touched his ribs. And as he was driving home the next day, he was thinking about it. The next day on the playground when he was playing, all of a sudden his stomach started to ache and his mom could see him limping around and went over to him and said, Johnny, what's going on? And he said, I think I'm having a wife. (laughs) Don't be offended, ladies. Don't be offended. Um, But the story of creation is one that that it's important. It's important because it tells us about the way that God feels about us, the way that he sets us apart from different pieces of creation. And it should impact the way that we see our world and the way that we live in our world. And in one of the very very first, Genesis chapter one, verse one, there's a phrase that probably a lot of you have memorized. I'm gonna put it up on the, the screen. It just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm gonna ask, I don't do this a lot here at Gulfside. Time out, can I just step out of my sermon for just a minute? If you were here last week, something... To me, it's funny. To you, it may not have been funny. Last week when I was preaching, my sermon, I have a countdown that's like, Paul, you only have this much time. It got reset like every five minutes. <laughs> so that if you're like, why did Paul preach for like 45 minutes? That was the first time you guys ever got all my notes on one Sunday. So I'm going to be good and I'm going to be on time. So back to work. Okay, here we go. Um, put that back up on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to ask you to read this with me. In the beginning, look back to, there you go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, one more time, because a lot of you weren't really sure if you were supposed to say it out loud, and I really did mean it. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, take it away. I want us to try to say it again without the words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, I know that's not a hard thing to memorize, but it's so important because what what is about to be unpacked in the first few verses of Genesis is something that should be descriptive of the way that you see your heavenly father. First of all, this world, it, it didn't happen by accident. And as God began to create, as he gets into verse verse two and, and, and three, when he when he says there's light, how did God create the earth? Just from his his words. He said, let there be light, and there was. And I just want to rest for a minute as we begin to unpack some of this chapter. I want you to think about the incredible power of the words of God. That he didn't have to find raw materials to work with and then manipulate them with his hands to cause things to be created. He spoke, and it happened. And the magnitude to which his voice has power, it should shake the core of your heart and your mind. Do, do I have any people who love to get outdoors with me today? I'm gonna, yeah, okay, there's some of my people. I, I've got a picture in there. I believe it got loaded. Maybe I messed up. Is there a picture 
Uh, yeah, go ahead and put the picture up. So I know you can't see too well. Uh, over Christmas break, I took my kids to, sm- to the Smoky Mountains, and it was one of those things that when you bring four children on a hiking trip, you're just like, I am ready for this wine fest. Like, I like hiking enough that I don't care. I'm going to drag my children along. And it was our first ever hiking trip, so they had no clue what to expect going up a mountain, especially when they've lived in Florida as long as they have. They had no clue what they were in for. And so after the first mile, I was ready. Okay, here's one thing we can see one mile deep. You guys ready to go back? And they were like, no, let's keep going. And my mind was blown. I was like, okay, let's go. And so we we did a five-mile round-trip hike together. But this is one of the sites that we saw. And you can see my, my children sitting there at the bottom. They're the little dots. And this is just the rock that is above us. And we had already hiked about two and a half miles up into the mountains, and so the view looking down was breathtaking as well. And there's something about that, that, that feeling when you're next to a mountain cliff, that it sets your scale of life back in order, where you're just, you feel like, I am so freaking small compared to all of this. When I stay inside my house with my drywall around me and my face glued to a little electronic screen, it's easy to get confused about how important I am. But there's something that's designed into our heart that when you get out there and you see the incredible scope of creation, that it dials you back in to say, there is a creator God out there who is just more magnificent than my mind can even begin to understand. And then when you contrast that against the biggest mountain that you've ever been to that makes you feel incredibly small and you look at the scope of other planets just in our universe and you're like, Jupiter makes Earth look like a tiny little baby. The sun is uncomparable. But then you, you zoom out from there and you say, we estimate there's 173 billion at minimum galaxies out there in the observable universe. Some scientists say that it could be up to two trillion and and those planets and those suns dwarf everything that we know about size and scope and it's just the wallpaper for the world in which God has set us in. His power is incomparable. And when his word said, let there be light, and there was, it set the speed limit for the known universe. It set all the scientific principles into motion. And and it amazes me that we can know God's voice can set the sun in its place. But when God speaks to me and says, child, I need you to go. Child, I need you to speak to that person. Child, I need you to show mercy when you could show judgment. We're like, ah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if your word is good, God. His word, his voice created all matter. So when his voice speaks into your life, don't be slow to listen, but be responsive knowing who it is that speaks and who you are that listens. But man, the, the voice of God, it, it's easy to, to get it confused in things because even one of the first instructions that God gives man is he says, here, I've set you up in paradise. It, it's a garden. You don't even need clothes. So it must be warm all year round because a loving God would never set a naked man in a garden where there's snow on the ground. I'm just saying He gave him the most beautiful woman on earth, 
Pastor joke. Think about it. It'll get there. And he, and he said, this one tree, this one tree, you can have any other tree in the garden, but this one tree, don't eat it. And then that, we don't have all the information about how this happened, but it's interesting, as you were reading, and the, the serpent tempted Eve, and she spoke to him. There, there's this little piece that, that maybe would have been easy to miss. You can go back and see it later, where when the serpent said, you know, you shall not surely die, and, and her response, her, her saying what God said was, God said we can't eat it, we can't even touch it. And it's interesting, and it's noteworthy, because God in, God's instructions was not don't even touch it. God's instructions were don't eat it. And, and I believe that detail is there to reaffirm a principle to you that you need to know the word of God and that when you add to the word of God or you subtract to the word of God, you are putting yourself in a destructive situation. Because as Eve began to believe that it, it, I'm not even supposed to touch it. If I touch it, I'll surely die. The moment that she began to put her hands on that fruit, she probably even further questioned whether or not God was honest with her. And when we add things onto scripture, when we say what God's word has taught is not enough, so I'm going to put further hedges around it. I'm going to create additions to it to just make sure that it's even safer than what it was. Do you understand that you're undermining the authority of the word of God when you add things onto it? Do you understand that God in his wisdom, if he did not include that nice little nugget that you would like to write into your Bible as an additional instruction or commandment, that God in his wisdom is higher and further and deeper than your wisdom will ever be. And we can trust him with what he has written to us in his word. Do you understand that, church? So we don't add on to scripture, we don't remove from scripture, but we trust and we believe every single word of God. And and the temptation, there is lots of pieces of the temptation, I believe, of you'll be like God, of he's holding something out from you. Do you really think what God said will, will happen? And the doubt that welled up in Eve and in Adam, because as we look at that interaction, whether Eve began to take the fruit or not, her husband sat there without a word coming out of his mouth. And a healthy relationship, what we see described in Ephesians chapter 5, is one where we mutually serve each other. And if you're a spouse in this room right now, I want to tell you, there are times that you need to correct. There are times where you need to speak up. And husbands and wives, we need to encourage each other to follow the teachings of Scripture, to follow the Word of God, not to sit idly by as destructive things happen. You say, well, you know, what does Adam say when God finds them? It was the woman that you gave me. Eve says, it was the serpent that was in the garden. It was his fault. So Adam blamed God. Eve, in a roundabout way, blamed God. But neither one of them wanted to take accountability for what happened. Some other interesting notes about the fall. Um, Psychologists and theologians did a study uh, on the fruit because we always represent it as being an apple. 
Um, but both psycholo- psychologists and theologians agreed that it, it, Apple probably wasn't there. It didn't really fit with the times. Also, a woman wouldn't trade everything, you know, absolute paradise for an apple. They both agree that it was probably chocolate instead. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. We, we, we don't know what the fruit is, but I'll tell you this about the fruit. It, it appeared like it was good for eating, but I almost guarantee you that on the first bite, it the experience of having it wasn't as good as what you thought it would be. And we look at them and like, you morons, how could you give up everything anyone would ever want for that one temporal thing? Like, how, how could you do that? How could you give up a lifetime of blessing for that, that, that mistake that, that was just done in a moment? How could someone give up a lifetime of a family for one moment with someone who was not their spouse? How could you give up a lifetime of health to experiment with drugs for a, a just quick high? How could you give up on a relationship that is so close to your heart because you won't deal with the one hard conversation that needs to be had? We might look at them and we might project and say, oh, I would have done so much better than them, but I'm going to tell you. You, you, you've inherited the same nature and you manifest the same habits and actions that, we, that they did, but it just has a different form. The apple, the fruit, it looks different now. The chocolate bar, it looks different now. But we make similar mistakes. But the effects, you know, Scripture, and one of the reasons why we're going through the story is because we're gonna see pictures of what, what's called the upper story, what God is doing through time, and the lower story, what God is doing in individuals' lives, like in Adam and Eve, what he's doing specifically in them. But we're gonna be able to connect that to the upper story with the pace that we're going through this at. And to, to just make sure you know the outline, at the very beginning, it's paradise. Like the garden, it was paradise. God's intention for mankind was paradise. And then as man rejected that, then we're going to move into the, the section, the movement of scripture that's described as Israel, the nation of Israel. And then we'll go from the nation of Israel to the time of Jesus and then to the, the early church and then back to paradise. Throughout so much of scripture, and in fact, it, as you've read Genesis before, you might say, why did they relist the order of creation backwards? It's called the chiastic structure. And you'll see this throughout scripture at different times where it lists something that needs to be remembered where it starts at A, B, C, D and then it goes D, C, B, A and relists it as a memory device for the learners. And it's an interesting thing that the, the picture of scripture starts with paradise and ends with paradise. And there's certain things that, that unless you, you study scripture in, in this ongoing, ongoing train of thought that you'll miss these things. And it's easy to spend time in Adam and Eve, but miss the effect that it has on the overall picture because we see Adam and Eve's failure where they're cast out of the garden, but then what we see immediately happening in them, and one of the points that we see of the next chapters of Genesis is the amazing escalation of sin. That we start with choosing to eat this fruit. And then what happens within the first generation with Cain and Abel, As you read, you, you saw Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices before God. And some of you guys might have been saying, okay, why did God reject Cain's sacrifice? 
Well, there's a detail that was included in, in the passage that where God was speaking to Cain in chapter four, verse seven. And it said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain, there was already things in his life that made his offering that he brought to God not match up with the line that he was, life that he was living. And God told him, if you begin to do what's right, you will be accepted. But Abel's reaction to that interaction with God was just more anger to where he brought his brother out into the field. And the first death that we see in scripture is a murder. And we're like, man, how did we go from one generation being in the garden where they would hear the Lord walking through the garden in the cool of the day and they would walk with him to a brother murdering another brother? It escalates further than, than that. That Lamech then says, if someone wounds me, I'll murder them. I will pay back 77 times what anyone ever does to me. And then it elevates from there into the time of Noah where God is saying there is violence that is just prevalent throughout all the earth. And for the big, the overarching picture, because it's easy to lose this amongst the names and the genealogies, but you've got to see God set up perfection. God set up the dream situation. And from there, the fall took drastic effect, both on man and on earth, to where siblings are murdering each other, where revenge is far beyond scale, and violence is widespread throughout the earth. And then it, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and we'll put this up on the screen, it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Now I know that we all think the world today has just gotten worse from what it used to be. But I wanna submit to you that biblically, it's been worse than what it was today. That we, we have biblical record at a couple different points where what was happening in societies was far more destructive and far more anti-God. It had gotten so bad in Genesis 6 that God describes the wickedness of the human race that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Verse 7 continues and says, So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why did God regret that he had made them? Because of the suffering that they were causing, not just to God's heart, but to each other. The destructive nature of what's being described here, I believe, is far beyond even what we see in our day and time. But there was one man on earth who caught God's attention for the way that he lived, and that was Noah. Verse eight says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One of the dangerous things about finding favor in the eyes of the Lord is that Noah was assigned a task. Noah's task took a hundred years to build. You think you've been working on your issues for a while? You think you've been working on your husband's issues for a while? Can you imagine the way your neighbors would look at you if you spent even 
10 years building a boat in your backyard? The world had reached a point where God was grieved at the condition of man. And Noah spent a hundred years walking in obedience before he saw any real evidence of God's word coming true. And I just want, I want that to soak in. Like a hundred years where God says, this is going to happen and I want you to work for it. I, I, want, I want you to be at work on it. I want it to be on your mind. Because our scope of things is like, if I pray about it, God, will you answer today? And God, if you don't answer tomorrow, then I'm just going to depart from your way and I'm going to go figure it out myself. You haven't sent the spouse. You haven't sent the finances. You haven't sent the thing to scratch the itch that I have. And I just can't wait on you. And there is something about the economy of God where he does value obedience. And not just short, brief, sprint obedience, but marathon obedience. And Noah's building for a hundred years, and then he enters the ark. The, an- the animals come, he enters the ark with his children, with his spouse, and then they're in the ark for 370 days. Now, I don't know about the list of things that could make you lose your mind, but on it, would be 370 days trapped in a little building with every animal earth has to offer your spouse and your children and their spouses. Coming out of the, and coming out of the Noah story, the, the story didn't necessarily get into this, but just so you know, when he got out, he built a vineyard. And when he built a vineyard, the next thing it says is that he got drunk. And no matter how judgmental you try to be, you would be too if you went through that. It's interesting, and I, and I don't say that just to joke or to be funny or to make light of alcohol abuse, but like, I, I want you to see this. The most righteous man on earth, God tapped him and said, I'm starting over with you. As bad as you think the world is today, if you could pick the absolute best family and see through all of their motives and all of their heart issues and all of the ways that they think, and you say, you get to just recreate the earth and we're going to start with you, the world is going to be so much better. What happened when they got on land? First, Noah gets drunk. Second, one of his sons, Ham, he, he, he does something destructive and he embarrasses him. And, and, it's, and why is that included in scripture? Because it's showing you even amongst the very best, you can, still cannot escape the sin nature. That the effect of the fall, even when you remove all of the worst people and you take the absolute best one, we can't fix it on our own. If God removes all of the temptation from your life, and all of the people who have been dragging you down, and you find yourself alone with God, you will still find your sinful nature right there with you. And the only one who can save us from it is God himself. The only one who can create forgiveness and substitution uh, for someone else to take the penalty that you deserve, the only one who can pay that cost is God himself. Because even when the rest of the world was taken off the map, Noah still wasn't 
the issue. And so as they begin to create, as they begin to repopulate the world, the story then takes us into Babel, which it's a very interesting story. And there's just one major piece that I think we usually miss from that that happens within the corruption of community. There's this group of people in Babel and they, they determine instead of going out and, and taking care of the world and populating the different places, we're gonna build one city and we're gonna make a name for ourselves and we're gonna build a, a tower. And Genesis eleven six, the second half of the verse, just very simply says this. God's speaking of the people and he says, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And this is an interesting principle that God puts in here because these people were not living for God. But this is something that God understands about the capacity of his creation. That when they put their mind to it, they can do absolutely extraordinary things. And so it is true of people in general. So it is true even to a higher degree of the church. And our expectation is a lot lower than God's expectation for what we can pull off. And if you weren't here last week, you missed out on the reminder of the vision of what we're going to do as a church. Go back and watch last week's sermon. It's on Facebook and YouTube. Don't worry, it's the shorter ones of the two. It's not the 50-minute version that you guys got last week at this service. But our expectation of what God can do through the church is so much lower than what it should be. We can do incredible things with the gifts that God has given us to do. And so God looks at their situation and he says they're gonna accomplish great things but it's gonna be a waste of their life because they're gonna accomplish the wrong thing. And so he divides them and he sends them out to different places within the earth. And, and, and from there, it's this spreading that begins to occur that God wanted the people to go all throughout the earth. As they were building the tower, there was this and band, you guys can make your way up. I'll begin to end this thing on time. As they were building the tower, one of their statements they wanted to make with the tower is that we ourselves are gonna ascend to heaven. We're gonna do this life and we don't need a God. We don't need his help. We're gonna build a tower with stick and mortar and it's gonna ascend up. And the passage, it, it, it uses words very intentionally because it says, as they were building their tower up, God came down from heaven. And it's like, your tower isn't even near me. Like, I still, have, I still have to move myself low to even come look at this tower that you think you're building. And he shows his power and his dominion over them. And he confuses their language. And, and in this mindset of, I'm gonna fix it, I'm gonna show myself as equal to God, it, it's a result of the fall. The temptation was there at the fall of eat this and you'll be like God. Eat this and you'll know things like God. And the temptation to build our own way back to God, it creeps into churches as well. It's not just secular. It's not just this, this pagan group of people who want to build a tower. It's like, I'm going to put God on my terms, and I'm going to tell him how I relate to him, and I'm going to tell him which scriptures I will obey and which ones I won't. I'll tell God what my schedule looks like for worship and for serving in his house, and I'll tell God what he gets to do in my life. And I want to tell you, it's this flipped upside down thinking of who is the Lord, who is the one who his words carry the power to set the stars in their places. Who is the one that when he speaks something, it always in his image, always happens in this season. And who is the one who is created in, in his image? God is not created in your image. You are created in his and the importance of studying these Old Testament stories is that it helps give us a better picture of the power of God, of what he can do. 
The way he can confuse even our, our best works on earth if he wanted to. The way he could wipe everything out and start over again. The way that he spoke everything into existence. And at the very beginning, everything was created through him. That there was nothing that was there. I want to tie these to a couple New Testament principles as I close things up. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, then verse 14. This is the beginning of the gospel, the story of Jesus. And it ties it back to Genesis at the very beginning. And it says, in the beginning was the Word. Like the Word that God spoke everything through. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You need to know the story of creation because the New Testament teaches us all of it happened through Jesus himself. And you can't understand who Jesus is without understanding creation. And in, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, Jesus is teaching and says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. We need to understand the story of Noah because it's going to be like that on the day that Jesus returns. Everyone will be continuing on their life, not believing what God has said. And then what God has promised will come true in its time. The ark is a picture of the love of God to preserve his people. And from the time that man fell in the garden, God has begin, begun speaking and he has been moving and he has been trying to provide in your life the information that you need. And he's been drawing you towards him so that you would reach a point where you say, God, I believe you are Lord. I'm willing to confess it with my mouth. I believe it in my heart. I know that you rose from the dead to pay for my sins because there's nothing I could ever do to make up for my sins but only by your sacrifice. Since the time of the fall, God has been moving things to move in our hearts and draw him back. And there's a man who is struggling with the question of like, am I saved? Like, how, am I right with God? And he came to a theologian named D.L. Moody. And he, he said, you know, I, I, I'm worried that I don't feel saved. And Moody answered back to him and said, was Noah safe in the ark? That's an interesting question. Was Noah safe in the ark? And God gave him plans for the ark and he followed them and God protected him in the ark. And so reasonably say, yes, he was safe. And then D.L. Moody said, well, what made him safe? His feelings or the ark? This is the message of the gospel, that we are not saved by the works we could do, by the towers that we could build, by the testimony that we could build for ourselves. We are saved by the power and the work of God. Since the time of the fall, there is nothing that we could do to make ourselves right with God, but God so loved the world. Actually, you know that verse in John 3, 16, but let me remind you of Genesis 3, 15, because this is where that promise really gets its root. After the fall, 
God speaking and he says, I'll put, he's speaking to the serpent and to the woman. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. And that's described as one of the first tellings of the gospel. Why did it switch from your offspring, plural, to he will crush your head? Because it's a promise of Jesus it was a promise of Jesus coming. And so Genesis 3.15 is really a foundation to John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. He sent his son to crush the enemy and to give you new life. And through this story, you're going to see from creation to revelations, God has been showing you that he loves you and showing you that he sent his son to pay a penalty that you could never pay. And as you sit here today, I hope you have no fear about whether or not you have a right relationship with God. Because when you take that step and you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, he says, you're in my hands now. You're in my ark now. I carry you now. And no one can snatch you from my hand. But have you made that choice? Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, if there is anyone in the room today who feels like they have not yet personally made that decision, would you give them the courage to just take that step and give their heart over to you today? And we know that when you say that when we come to you, you take our sins and you remove them as far as the east is from the west. That you take us and you make us new creations. That you adopt us into your family and you call us dearly loved children of God. And would you just refresh their heart and their mind with the truth of that knowledge? Would your spirit just surround them and fill them with hope in this moment where they know that you love them and you have been speaking to them for years to bring them to this, to, to this point. Where we now know that we are in your hands and we thank you for that gift of salvation that is only found in Christ. Would you continue to work in our life and in our city and in our church? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?